0: welcome to eat sleep wine repeat a podcast for all you wine lovers who if you're like me just cannot get enough of the good stuff i'm Yanina doyle your host brand ambassador wine educator and sommelier so stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving wonderful world of wine and wherever you are listening to this cheers to you Hello, wine friends. Are you ready for part two with Henry Jeffries? So we are continuing our conversation about his latest wine book, Vines in a Cool Climate. And you will notice a protagonist in this episode, a name that continues to come up. In fact, he even got mentioned in part one, and that is Peter Hall, who is one of England's wine pioneers. And so... I have got my hands on a bottle of his sparkling wine. And so, if you give me a few moments before we start the chat with Henry, I am going to tell you about what is in my glass. So, Peter Hall is the man behind the winery Breaky Bottom, which you can find in the South Downs in Sussex. And this winery He started in 1974 and one of the grape varieties that was originally planted was Seville Blanc. So this was a time when Chardonnay and Pinot Noir was not a thing. Now for the first two decades, Peter was just making still wines out of his Seville Blanc and other great varieties such as Muller Turgau. However, as he says it himself, he felt that the variety of Seville Blanc is such a clean and straightforward variety, but with good acidity. So he always assumed it would be quite nice with bubbles in. So when he began making traditional method sparkling wines, this was one that he began with. This has become a bit of a flagship, something that Peter is really known for, but he does also make traditional method sparkling wine from the classic varieties as well. What's really nice, every single cuvee is always named after somebody important in his life, so do look at the names and investigate for yourself. I today have the 2015 Seville Blanc Brut and it is the Cuvée Jack Pike. Now this wine is in his memory because he helped plant the very first vineyard back in 1974. Also, I do love a wine that is numbered. I am drinking bottle number 1,594 out of 6,694. And I'm also going to give them a round of applause because they are using hardly any foil on the top. You can see the cork. It's a very smart bottle and I love that they're not wasting materials. Okay. I think it is time for me to open up. This bottle of wine. Oh, there you go. Music to my ears. Is that not one of the best sounds in the world? (laughs) So this wine has had about four years on the lease. That is the natural yeast that is in the bottle during the second fermentation that is going to impart those bready, toasty notes into the wine. So I'm assuming there's going to be a little bit of richness, but Savo Blanc, I mean, it's not really a great variety that I know very well. I know it can have a bit of a citrusy element. It can be a little bit mineral it can take to oak. So, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. This is not what I expected at all. Wow. okay. This has this kind of nutty, kind of waxy, bruised apple. Vibe going on, but there's also like this kind of cinnamon spice going on, a bit of an oxidative character. So, wondering whether that is normal or if it's this bottle, but it's actually very attractive. Okay, like, and there's this like smoky mineral woody pine note. It's kind of very hard to describe, but it's very curious. So, okay, this is really nice. This is not, disclaimer, this is not my favourite style, but I like how unique this is. This is very textural on my tongue. Like there's a, it's like peach skins. It's like a little bit furry (laughs) with this really crisp green apple acidity. It's really crunchy, very, very fresh as a sparkling wine. But then at the same time, flavour-wise, you've got this kind of baked peach pie. There's that nutty, oxidative character coming through, but it's not super strong. Really, this wine is very, very fresh. And then hmm, the finish, you've got this, it's like a slightly uncooked sourdough. Touch of saltiness and, and then loads of kind of bruised apples. This is really, really interesting. If you want to taste a wine with texture, but great brightness and flavours and aromas that I actually am not used to tasting in sparkling wine, this is a fab one to go for. And well, also it's a great way to taste Sauvignon Blanc, which is officially the fifth most planted grape variety in England at the moment. Now, if you're wondering how much this costs, you can get this for £36 a bottle. And guess what? <laughs> it's all worked out rather perfectly. It's almost as if I set this up, but after talking with my sponsor, Wickham's Wine, they have this on their website. So remember, if you use the code EATSLEEP10, you're going to get 10% off your first order. And this may be one of the bottles that you want to try. But for now, whatever English wine you have around, pour it and enjoy as we go across to the chat with Henry now. I would love to talk about some of the things that I read in the book, and I'd love for you to elaborate on them a little bit more. So, Plumpton College—we this is our only college in the UK, but it has building this incredible reputation now. So many of our top winemakers have come through Plumpton College. It started as a chicken shed with just two rows of vines, and this is 1988. That's for me. I think that's crazy.
1: Yeah, and it, and it mentioned Chris Foss, and he was making wine in Bordeaux and he came to England. I think his wife was English and was homesick. And he went to vineyards and said, you know, can I work for you? And first of all, they didn't really understand why he was French rather than German. And they also <laughs> were, and they also he, he wanted to you know properly to be paid properly. And they were like, you know, we can give you some appallingly low salary, and you know, he was a professional, he'd be making wine in France. And then someone said to him, Plumpton College are thinking of starting a wine course. So he has a teaching degree and he went along and said, you know, I'll do it. And they said, okay. And they made, I think they gave him a, a tractor, some Debbie Johns and a chicken shed and like a, <laughs> row, a row of vines and said, let's get on with it. And he says he found the whole thing really baffling because he was working with all these obscure German varieties like Huxley, Reiber, and Reichensteiner. Mm-hmm. He was, he. the climate was just, he wasn't used to at all. And he was saying the acidity was just unbelievably high. And he he said that he just, for the first few years, he just didn't really know what he was doing. But he obviously, you know, he was being modest because this turned into a very prestigious wine school. And if you go to any wine producer in England, there's probably not a single producer in England that doesn't have someone who trained at Plumpton working there which just kind of shows how influential it is. Like previously, if you were into wine, you'd have gone to Bordeaux or Montpellier or Roseworthy in Australia, and you'd have probably stayed there. But, but now it meant all the talent from England or, you know, anywhere else,
0: it's staying here.
1: Yeah, you know, staying here, exactly, mm-hmm. you know. And it sucks in people from like uh, Liam Itsakovsky at Danbury Ridge, and you know, he's from Ireland, and you get people from, you know, Northern Europe and South Africa and stuff. So it just, yeah, it's you can't really overstate how important Plumpton are. And you go there now and it's all very high tech and they've got this winery that was opened by Jancis Robinson and laboratories and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, it's a far cry from the chicken shed.
0: And you know what? I was just at Gatwick South and I was very happy because I've been trying to fly from Gatwick South for a really long time because Vagabond has opened up its first English sparkling wine bar. So have you, have you been?
1: I haven't. No, no. Was I at Gatwick? Do you know, I was at Gatwick South. But no, I don't think you I wasted saw, I don't your I, visit. I, I, I missed it. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. So it's called South Downs and you can't really miss it. It's literally opposite the Vagabond restaurant that they have. But really cute, really classy, but it's lovely because there's, I don't remember now, I could be making this up, but maybe like 10 sparklings, 10 stills or so that are all by the glass as well. So it's amazing. And actually I tasted the Plumpton College their own sparkling rosé, non-vintage. And it was brilliant. It was lovely. It was really like strawberry kool It had this kind of, it was a dry sparkling, but it had this real sweetness of fruit to it, really creamy. It was lovely. And so I just thought, you know, it's nice to be able to drink wines made from the students of Plumpton. That tells its own story, doesn't it? So it was lovely. Yeah, so they win mm-hmm.
1: awards, you know, their commercial wines, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is, yeah, no, yeah, great stuff. Yeah.
0: Well, next time you get Rick South,
1: <laughs> Don't forget to go. Yeah, to no, I, was, I think I think I, I was on my way to Montpellier, but it was about six in the morning. Oh, and, the, and, just, and? Uh, yeah, and I just you know I wasn't thinking about wine.
0: <laughs> Listen, your palate would have been its most open and uh, ready to taste.
1: <laughs> the uh, most, I missed opportunity.
0: <laughs> well, the next time, the next time. Now we're talking about great varieties. You just mentioned. Uh, Peewee varieties, hybrids, that we still have some old Germanic varieties that I think people are starting to focus on. Has there been any that you've tasted that probably most likely are in a still wine that you think could be a variety that, I don't know, pushes Pinot Noir and Chardonnay to the side that
1: has a Um future? We'll start with peewees, which are German varieties, and the word is short for one of those very, very long German words that means, I think it's like fungal resistant or something like that. So I think Solaris is a peewee, okay, yeah, and yeah. I've had some, you know some quite nice ones. Um, uh, Bin too in Padstow, they make a very nice still Solaris, which is actually very orangey, very nice. I had a red from Yote's Court, which is very near me in Kent.
0: Oh. I know what you're talking about. It begins with D, doesn't it?
1: Yes, a Divico, I think it's y- called.
0: Yes. Oh my God. I, I and I must say it. I wasn't,
1: yeah, I wasn't entirely convinced by that. Um, um,
0: not the price. I tasted it literally last week, and it was really interesting. It was very enjoyable and it had that depth of colour. the tannins were really good. But when they I said, hmm, yeah, I like it. I for English wine, yeah, I'll spend £20 on a bottle. And they looked at me and said, up, go up. I was like, what, 30? They were like, go up. They are selling it for about £50 a bottle.
1: Yeah, it's a jo- that's a joke, really. I must say I didn't share your love for it. I thought, good colour, nice tannins. I thought it tasted more like a sort of, like a de wine. It tasted like, it just tasted uh, all wrong, kind of a bit woody, no fruit. I thought it was horrible, to be honest. Well, they, oh,
0: did you? Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I, I, oh, that, I love it. Love, no, you know, I didn't think it was horrible at all, but they had put it in a decanter. And I wonder right. as well whether there is a bit more of an evolution compared to when you tasted it. If I had the choice to drink that or Pinot Noir, I would always drink Pinot Noir. But I thought it was definitely interesting. It was very drinkable and very fruit-driven. Interesting. Anyway, but um, yeah, they kept on saying, yes, but we make about... I don't know, five hundred bottles. We've got like that's why it's fifty pounds. I'm like, <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, it, uh, I mean, even even if you do quite like it, it's very basic.
0: Yes. If it
1: was wasn't from England, it would be like an eight pound wine, and if it was from England, it would be like a fourteen pound wine. It's I just, think that's you know, fair. Uh,
0: I think that's fair. The reason I went with twenty is because again, mm-hmm. English wine, especially the stills, the still rates, it just they're not they are not cheap, are
1: they? Because if you, you think know. about you know what you can get from. Like Force 2022 Pinot Noir is just so ripe and delicious, yeah. and you know it isn't cheap. You know it's what is it thirty thirty five pounds? So yeah, it's quite a lot of money, yeah. but it's so delicious and ripe and just you know it, it tastes like a really good wine. And I, I just I don't quite know why you would muck about with something else when you can already make nice Pinot Noir in England. I just so yeah.
0: No, you I, are I'm not convinced, mm, but.
1: It's lucky progress.
0: No, but you're right. Like you talk about, I love this. You abbreviate when you're writing uh, tasting notes for wines. It might be GFE, good for England, <laughs> rather than is it actually good on the world scene? And, and certainly like some of our Pinot Noirs out of England. And like, of course, the Luke's Pinot Noir from Balfour is one of those. It's not just good for England. It's not just GFE. <laughs> It's it's actually a pinot noir that can actually be tasted and enjoyed amongst the pinot noirs of the world. So yeah, I'll be honest, I can't see that peewee growing. <laughs> it's definitely interesting, but it's not going to grow, is it? No,
1: no. I, 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 you never know. It's work in progress, and in a few years' time, they might might have worked out exactly what to do with it. And I think the fungal thing is really useful because you, mm. you it is really hard to grow grapes in England, and if they can. You know, get a much better yield on it, or use little or no fungicide, but then it might have a future. I won't write it off. But- what
0: do you think about Cabernet Noir? I mean, Black Book. Oh, I haven't has tried. Actually-
1: I haven't tried that yet. Uh,
0: okay, funny. I have tried one. What well, I don't know how regularly Sergio from Black Book has done it, but I tried one vintage, and this is several years ago, and it was, I think, at a time when probably before his prices went up, but it was about eighteen pound a bottle. Did it rock my world? No, but I thought it's pretty interesting. It had some structure. Again, it, it was definitely better than, what was the great variety from Yotes again? Dell Divico. Divico. It was definitely way better, in my opinion, than Divico. And of course, the pricing was appropriate (laughs) as opposed to the Yates Court one. So I don't know, but it's certainly something. The problem is, and I think you touch on this, I don't know if you do touch on this on the book, I've just imagined it, but a lot of the names are quite weird and souvenir gris. It's like if someone sees souvenir gris, like, um, you know, things like that, I'm not sure whether. No, I do do touch
1: on that. And also, that's the problem that a lot of the old, german varieties so the, you know these are ones that were made at geisenheim by crossing riesling with something or other to make them ripen earlier or be more fungal resistant or more high yielding and mm-hmm. they have names like Huxelreber, reichensteiner you know <laughs> schoenberger all these kind of things and they just you know they don't sound very as nice as peter Rav or chardonnay or something they're not as they're not brand names whereas there are a couple of German varieties that do work really well. And it's partly to do with how the wines taste, but also the names. So, Bacchus, that's a German variety. And Ortega is another German variety. They both thrive in England. Mm. And I think Bacchus is now, after a long time of being a bit of a Bacchus skeptic, because people were making it in that huge green asparagus sort of style. And now people are being a bit more restrained using oak, using different yeast strains. And people like Flint in Norfolk are making these very elegant, sort of peachy, almost sort of Mm Sancerre-esque wines out of Bacchus, which I just think are wonderful. And then Ortega, which is a speciality of Biddenden in Kent, I think has a huge future. I think Biddenden obviously make a very good one. Westwell, who I've mentioned before, they make a sort of Albariño-style one. Which in 2022, a warm vintage was wonderful. And my wife, who's Californian and very sceptical about English wine, loves Westwell Ortega. It was our okay. sort of, sort of wine of the summer. So I think those kind of slightly forgotten about German varieties could have a really good future because they do. You do get higher yields than with the difficult French varieties. So yeah, I think there might be a kind of German variety renaissance at some point.
0: This is the second wine that I tasted at the South Downs bar. So this is literally only a few weeks ago. It was the mix-up volume four, and it is made from Muller, turgau and Rickensteiner. But the nice thing about the Black Book wines is they have really cool labels. They're really catchy. I think they call for a younger audience because they look really attractive just the bottle alone and then that's a really interesting way to be able to get people to try these slightly more unusual varieties or ones that people wouldn't normally go to and Sergio is just such a great winemaker that he seems to just really get it right with these slightly different varieties. And that wine was just so textural. It was so interesting. I think it had this kind of like ginger root edge, but it was one of those wines that is not about the aromatics, the opposite of Bacchus. It's much more about, you know, take your time, sit with it, see how it changes as it warms up a little bit. But it was a fantastic wine. So for me, gives me faith that it's good enough. But it's just whether consumers would get behind it.
1: On yeah, no, I totally scale. agree. I think the mix-up is wonderful. I tried the 2021 vintage, so you know, difficult vintage. And you're right; it's it's fruity, it's dry, and he does a lovely textural thing. There's that sort of creaminess to it, and I think that's the way to sell them is with these funky labels, and you know, don't say try and get people to pronounce Reichenstein or Müller Turgo. Just be like this is the name of the label. (laughs) You'll love it. And I think that's that's a challenge is to get, because England does these Germanic blends really, really well, but it's just trying to persuade customers who are brought up on Pinot Grigio or Chardonnay to just ignore the grape variety and Mm. just go for the label.
0: Then again, if you think about so many fantastic wines from around the world, Many of them are blends. There are some really interesting wines coming out of Italy or places that are a Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Viognier blends, whatever. I don't, you know, there are some really interesting, and it's not, the grape variety is irrelevant. It's like, hey, this is a great wine, give it a go. So, yeah, we'll see. And you talk about those fun labels. Tim Wildman's old vine, like the pet nap, I mean, is so, the lost in a field. The minute I tasted that years ago, I was like, it tastes like a Salero lolly, like the <laughs> tropical mango yumminess. It was just, it's fun. It's approachable. It's interesting. And his labels just catch you. So I think, and he's really started a bit of a, kind of like a England's version of cult following. I think I'm a bit ahead of the game. We're probably not quite there, but I think if there was a cult wine, I mean, he might be up there towards the top of the list. Don't know what you think.
1: Yeah, I think, do you know, I've never tried his wine. <gasps> I spoke to him for the book, but I, I, a shame. I, still, haven't got, I still haven't got around to trying them.
0: Oh my God. Well, to be honest, I don't actually know if he does more than one. As far as I'm concerned, the only one I've ever tried is one called Lost in the Field. It's a pet gnat and it's orange colored, orangey pinky colored, and just has really beautiful fruit. It's a massive mix of loads of different grape varieties, lots. But he's got that very, very cool project, which to get people to come and help rescue old vineyards, ones that have super, super old vines, of course, most likely. Germanic, and they come and help in the vineyard, and then they can eat and camp in that vineyard overnight. So, be part of the project and really get involved and be part of nature. I need to get him on the podcast at some point and talk. You to him should do. I think... No, he's a really yeah.
1: interesting man, pretty interesting oh, man. He's got so we're, much energy. So we're talking as well. about mm-hmm. England's cult wine. I would say Ooh, it's, who? it's Charlie Herring. It's uh, it's another Tim, Tim Phillips,
0: <laughs> who makes
1: wine in a walled garden in Hampshire. And he okay. is apparently the only person who's ever made a successful dry Riesling. Though when I visited him, it had all sold out. And I'd say he is about as close as you'll get to a cult wine in England. Mm. His, he, they sell out instantly. Yeah. He could double his prices and then still sell out. He's such an interesting man because he's this amazing mixture of being a daredevil. I mean, he he wrote the Isle of Man TT on his Ducati but he's also an accountant as well. So he's like a kind of maverick accountant. So he takes these huge risks. He does he plows his own furrow, but he makes sure everything is really carefully costed as well so that he has a sustainable business. Brilliant, really interesting man.
0: Am I right in thinking, because I know you do mention him in the book, that that walled garden where he has been able to successfully ripen Riesling, was this the, also the same garden or something that they grew a pineapple in? Am I making this up?
1: I don't know if it was where they, (laughs) because there is that famous hot house pineapple, isn't there? I don't think it's the same place, but that's exactly what the garden was for. It was Uh, Victorian times. It was lined up to get the evening sun and it's where they would grow peaches and lemons and oranges so Mm. that the people in the big house, this is before, you know, supermarkets and stuff, obviously, before you got fruit shipped in from South Africa. This is so that the rich people in the house could have lemons and oranges and stuff. And then it was derelict and he bought it for, well, I think originally the owner wanted a million pounds for it, but he ended up getting it for like 80,000 pounds. Cleared it all out. Planted Chardonnay, Sauvignon. See, he's an accountant, so he's good at that. Planted (laughs) Chardonnay, Riesling and Sauvignon Blanc and makes these incredible tiny quantities of organic wine in his wall garden. And he tells me he could charge four times what he does for them, but they all just sell out instantly. So he is England's cult producer.
0: Okay. Well, now I'm going to have to try and get my hands on one of them. All right. And everyone else race for it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but- well, well, the label's called Charlie Herring, and he, and which is his kind of brand name because he used to make wines in South Africa. Mm. But the winemaker is called Tim Phillips.
0: Okay there you go everybody but you might not get it but keep your eye open if you ever find one grab it. Well, it's interesting you so he's doing that organically and actually you've done a whole chapter on organic wine growing in England which I thought was really fascinating because it really opened up my mind. I'll be honest I'm a bit like ugh yeah organics in principle works but in England too hard now and then actually you talk about so many different producers who are actually doing great things and getting really good results because they're just getting the soil in balance and then not struggling with things like botrytis and funguses and it's actually working. So what was your take on all that? You've written a whole chapter. Well, yeah, I
1: I think I was very lucky in the chapter in that I don't have any axe to grind. I think a lot of people who write about sustainability, they either come down very hard on one side or they come down very hard on the other. You know, I don't really care. So I just was very curious (laughs) about how it would work. And a lot of people who are sort of organic friendly would then say, copper sulfate, which is what is generally used as a fungicide, is so poisonous that they would much rather use synthetic fungicide. So I'm talking. I'm thinking about Flint in Norfolk or Westwell in Kent, mm-hmm. but they'd rather use a synthetic fungicide and not be organic than use copper sulfate and be organic. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, And then yeah. there are some people who are fully organic, you know, don't use any synthetic fungicides. People like yeah. Davenport in Kent and Sussex, or Harrow and Hope in Buckinghamshire. And they seem to be getting tremendous results, you know, good yields, that kind of stuff. So it's sort of, yeah, you know, I didn't really come to any firm conclusions. Yeah. I was just interested in how many different ways there are to farm and how people approach things in a different way. But I think it is very hard to do it organically. And you have to, yeah, I mean, I don't think I'd, I think if I was growing grapes, I think, I don't think I'd try just because of, <laughs> because of that dampness we were talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Tattinger, who grow organically in their vineyards in Champagne, don't do it in Kent because they mm-hmm. think it's too damp and they're not ready to do it at the moment. So there's lots of ways of doing things. And then there was the whole sort of regenerative viticulture thing, which was about soil health. And how Mm -hmm. in the end, perhaps it doesn't really matter whether you're organic or not. What really matters is the health of the soil. So you need to be careful about what you put into it, whether that's copper sulfate or whether that's fungicide or herbicide or that kind of stuff. So it, it was a real kind of learning experience and something that I just realized that coming down really hard on one, you know, saying I'm organic, therefore I'm doing it right, or you're wrong because you're not organic, is really the yeah. wrong way to look at it. And it's really the philosophy behind it, I think matters more than whether you fill in, the, you know, your biodynamic or your organic, which are yeah. sort of labels really.
0: No, precisely. I have to say of all of the chapters, but this might be because I'm already in the English wine industry. So part of it, I already knew. But this chapter, I just found really fascinating because I think you used all your knowledge from speaking to so many different winemakers and brought it together to, yeah, create another question there is there is no answer is there and and I think you mentioned Tim Phillips actually really says no you know what it can be cheaper to be organic if you're a smaller winery so again depends on the size let alone your objective my takeaway as well was was how fascinating it was that apparently by being organic that the leaves can get more I think you said leathery and that the skins can be thicker so actually again the fungus problem can be solved in certain places by being organic. But it just, everybody read the chapter because it's, and then have your own conclusion. But I just think it quite clearly lies out really easily more questions and this understanding that there is no right answer. There is no one way to do things, right?
1: Well, thank you for that because it was definitely the hardest chapter to write. because I because oh, okay. I just spoke to so many people and just trying to organize all the information that I had was really hard. And I kind of finished the chapter sort of almost as confused as when I started. <laughs> but, then, but then I just thought, well, you know, actually, that's not a bad thing, because as I just said, it shows there isn't a simple answer. And to try and pretend Precisely. that there is would be would be wrong.
0: Well, there you go. I, as a person in the wine industry who is aware what organics is and which wineries use organics, I bloody love that chapter because it just opened up my eyes a little bit more and I felt like I really learned something. So thanks for doing that for us. <laughs> well, I certainly
1: learned something as well because I didn't know anything about it when I started.
0: Well, there you go, everyone. Read the organic chapter. So I want to touch on, I love it as well. I just, your insights, what you've been able to get. I learned that in the conversations we've had of how do we brand English sparkling wine? What do we call it? And of course, I always heard that there was Britannia or Britannic or th- th- these kind of words, and nothing ever stuck. But you had people coming together saying, "Let's call it Fred." <laughs> Is this yeah, there did was, I that, was, that was
1: Anthony Rose, I think, came up with Fred. Why Fred? Um, oh, I can't remember. It was like fermentation, remuage, something oh, else, and okay. disgorgement.
0: Okay. Can you imagine ordering a glass of Fred? Pie?
1: <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. So that was a funny one. There's yeah. Malcolm Gluck. I think as a joke said it should be called a Pippa after Pippa Middleton. This was around the time that everyone was obsessed with with Pippa Middleton, which you know mm-hmm. obviously was I assume was a joke, but may not have been. Um, well, it didn't
0: work. It didn't stick.
1: Yeah, um, it's a really tough one because as we said you want people to be aware of the difference between a champagne method one and a prosecco method one yeah well, well that's tea, a bit like prosecco and it's a bit champagne on the label which should obviously be the easiest way to do it so if someone could come up with a name that know. would be great so we're talking about you know what do you call an english champagne style wine and i think that's part of the reason why Mark Driver came up with his Sussex PDO, you know, like uh, Appalachian Controle for Sussex, Mm -hmm. which, you know, as people have pointed out, doesn't make a lot of sense because Sussex really isn't that different to Hampshire or or Kent. But I think it's a way of, of defining his wine and saying only Champagne Method wines could be called Sussex. And I think, so in some ways, it's very clever. I don't think it'll take off though, but... You can see what he's trying to do.
0: I mean, we, we quite clearly, again, when we talk about marketing, there's lots of challenges, isn't there? But I think actually what's been really useful over the last few years, and of course, with the lockdowns, people not necessarily being able to leave the country. What really helped, I think, was from a tourist point of view, that people had to go places in England because they couldn't leave. And certainly I know from working for Balfour Winery and speaking to others, gosh, the amount of visitors that many wineries got just went through the roof. And so once you've visited a winery, oh my God, you become an honorary brand ambassador anyway, don't you? You know, it's such a, the wine never tastes as good as in that moment when you drink it in the vineyard. That's just the rules for everything, every winery in the world, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And actually, I mean, you touch on quite a few uh, different places that people can go and visit. Did you have any that you just thought, oh God, yeah, this is an amazing place to come down to. Or is there any way you could stay overnight that you would recommend to somebody, you know, maybe somebody from America who's listening, who's going to come to England, they might have just one place <laughs> that they can go to. Is there something that comes to your mind straight away.
1: Not really. Because I, you know, ah. I, I don't really know about staying the night because I've never stayed the night at an English vineyard because I mm-hmm. live in Southeast England. I mean, the one that is just the most extraordinary is Breaky Bottom, Peter Hall's okay. vineyard, which okay. is because you're not particularly far from Brighton, but it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere and you drive for two miles down this track. And then you're in this like perfect, like little lost valley. It feels like you're cut off from not just the 20th century or the 21st century, but, you know, the modern age. And you've got this beautiful, Mm. tiny little valley with a cottage at the bottom and then vines growing up the steep hillsides. And it's just the most beautiful, I think one of the most beautiful places in England and one of the most beautiful vineyards I've ever been to. And what's so wonderful about it is it's not, set up for tourism at all you have to email Peter Hall and if he's got time he'll show you around and you better buy a case otherwise you'll be in trouble Um, (laughs) but it's there's nowhere else like it in the world so I would say I'm afraid you'll have to take a risk and go to drop Peter Hall a line and see if he's got the time to show you around
0: no well I love it I love the fact that you I thought you were going to go with some of the bigger ones But I appreciate that because people can contact me and I can give them loads of lists of places where they could stay or visit. But I like that you have personally, from your experiences and based on visiting lots of vineyards and wineries in England, that actually that's one that people should try and get to. So, no, that's a much better answer than actually I was expecting. So, you you passed the test because... Other people could quickly Google, you know, hotel winery stay right, and see what. Yeah, but but also,
1: events. I mean, I, I'm not trying to be kind of rude to English vineyards, most of whom do the tourism thing really well. But most, a lot of the big ones, they do it in quite a similar sort of way. So you've got the mm-hmm. sort of thing overlooking the vines, and it's all very elegant and tasteful and stuff like that. But if you visit a lot of wineries, like I do they can all sort of merge into each other a little bit. So I think wine writers are always after something a little bit different to what members of the public are after. Members of the public are looking for a good time, something beautiful, whereas wine writers are after looking looking for something a bit strange, a bit unusual. So (laughs) the ones that appeal to us aren't necessarily the ones that will appeal to members of the public.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, the point is you described it beautifully. And I think we all with the business of life could do with going to a place where we can switch off and feel like we're in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: I love that. I love that a lot. Okay. So I will slowly start summing this up, but I just, I feel we've mentioned lots of key players, important people in the industry that people might want to Google and investigate more because there's loads of stories, but I want to touch on... One or two more. Bob Lindo, I think you talk about, which is absolutely brilliant, from Camel Valley down in Cornwall. I did not know about him camping outside Gatwick during the Olympics of 2012 because he was campaigning against the fact that they were advertising champagne and not english sparkling wine i had no idea about that so i loved that that was was that something that he told you about no was no
1: Sandra, the- that was one from that i heard from oz clark
0: well, oh, i think really? bob
1: told me it as well but i <laughs> initially found it found it in oz clark's book and okay. bob has just been a brilliant publicist for english wine and i think it mm. helps that he's In Cornwall, and one of his first customers was Rick Stein, you know, the... uh,
0: Yes, the the fish. Mm -hmm. Exactly.
1: And so Rick Stein has featured Bob in his programs and stuff. And Bob is is just a natural showman. You know, he's he's a salesman and a great winemaker as well. So he's just been, you know, because he's been doing it since the 80s, kind of pre-Nightimber. So before, you know, he had to do things to get himself noticed. And he's always been very, very good at that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I just thought that was absolutely brilliant, and goes to show the personalities that we have in the English wine industry. And- well, I think
1: I think uh, winemakers around the world, as I'm sure you know, always tend to be opinionated and full of interesting things to say. You, know, you don't uh-huh. often meet a dull winemaker, and okay. then I think that goes double for England because I think you still have to be a bit eccentric. To make wine in England. You know, it's still bloody difficult. <laughs> the, the weather is still, you know, very, very hard to predict. Like we don't even know if we're gonna have a good vintage this year. But it's still up in the still up in the air. So I think uh-huh. English winemakers are some of the most bloody minded, difficult, opinionated, fractious, fascinating people in the world. So, mm-hmm. you know, as I learned from researching the book.
0: Oh no, honestly, you're so right. Why make I mean, but you know what? If things are easy, it's not worth doing, isn't it? exactly yeah (laughs) you point on the fact just for people listening just to give some context like we don't know if we're going to have a good vintage this year right last year down at balfour winery i can comment we started picking on the 13th of september last year and and now granted it was actually a little bit earlier than normal but that's what we had right now we i was going to do a special harvest day with some press And I'm having to change the date because I was going to do the 29th, the idea of them picking grapes, not for the whole morning, for like perhaps 20 minutes, and uh, then coming and tasting some of the actual pressed juice of that moment. And I'm like, yeah, I spoke to our winemaker. He's like, I don't think we might, I don't think we'll even have grapes (laughs) to... there wouldn't be any grapes to pick because we need we're probably going to need to be looking at the first week of october fingers crossed that the weather you know holds and we don't have any surprises but like yeah it's from vintage to vintage it's so crazy and now it's just that waiting game of please ripen please ripen we're not there in
1: 2021 in essex they were picking on bonfire night
0: oh my god! And they got
1: some really nice pinot noir but it was you know down to the wire whether they were going to be able to ripen it and they did but it was yeah touch and go
0: but now you talk about Essex and I think that's a nice place just to finish off we've mentioned Kent and Sussex which we should because actually the majority of the vineyards are found there and then obviously scooping around but Essex more and more plantings are happening in Essex. It's a very exciting place, Crouch Valley specifically. It's like this little microclimate that everyone is getting very excited about. And you write in your book that John Atkinson, who's a master of wine and very involved in the English wine industry, he thinks that we have our very own Petrus in our Essex soils, which is very exciting. And I hope people listening, maybe their ears perk up and go, okay, hang on. So, what are your thoughts after having a little chat with him? Has he got
1: your Well, I mean, I, I only understand about half of what John Atkinson says. Most of it <laughs> goes, goes over my head because he's he gets very, very into different types of clay. And, you know, I, I can't follow most of what he says, but I can follow his enthusiasm yes. and I can taste the wines, which uh, he's the consultant at Danbury Ridge, which is. Yes. Some, I should have essence. said so. And the quality is just off the scale. So even in 2021, which was very difficult vintage, most people didn't make particularly good red wines, if they made any red wines at all. D'Abbry Ridge just tasted them out of the barrel. They were so ripe, so good. And it wasn't just them, Lime Bay, who are based in Devon, but they make their still wines from Essex fruit. Their 2021 Pinot Noir was just big and ripe and sort of, Mm. you know, you know, almost sort of, like Sonoma or something. So Essex is just for you know people like me who love English wine. I love English sparkling wine. I love the still wines in a good year. In Essex, they can do it every year. They can get those flavors. They can get the skins ripe enough to make red wine every year. So it, yeah, it's very very exciting, and you know I mean the wines are expensive, but worth it. Think, but I think they're worth it. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean they're sort of it's thirty cool. quid a bottle. But, 30, 30, But you know, if you think about what you pay for a top Californian, not even a top Californian Pinot Noir, just a mm-hmm. Californian Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. it's about the same. So, you know, I just think, yeah, Essex is, is so exciting. And I recommend people tracking down some Essex Chardonnays or Pinot Noirs because they're. I don't think you'll be disappointed.
0: Nor do I. And so to conclude, Henry, after all of this research, what is the direction for English wine? <laughs>
1: Well, I think it's chardonnay. I think chardonnay Chardonnay, is the future. I think Kent and Essex make fantastic chardonnay. I think we'll be able to do it at more reasonable prices in future. You know, it'll never be cheap, but Mm. you know, it'll compete head on with Chablis, Burgundy, rose. I think we'll see an awful lot more English rose, which is getting better and better the Mm -hmm, whole time. mm -hmm everyone's roses are they're not an afterthought anymore i think before yes. people were putting grapes that weren't ripe enough in they were grassy but they're not anymore they're really good so i think sparkly wine getting better the whole time but already there and then rosé and chardonnay i think those are the two that we'll be seeing a lot more of
0: amazing thank you everybody Well, I'm going to leave the link in the show notes of where you can purchase this book. And I listened to it as an audio book. So for those of you guys too busy, there's always time in the car when you're cleaning. This is a fantastic book. I really enjoyed it. And it's read by you.
1: I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I I hope people like the sound of my voice because they've stuck with me for (laughs) 300 pages.
0: (laughs) Well, if they've got to the end of this podcast, I think that you're safe.
1: I hope people enjoy it and, you know, and let me know whether you enjoy it. And let me know if I've got anything wrong as well. I just had an email from a, a someone making wines in the Cotswold to point out a couple of things I've got wrong. So well, there we go. Well,
0: there's always going to be one bits and bobs. You're fine. I loved it. So thank you so much for just, you know, touching on a little bit more and going in a bit more depth about this book. And there's so much more in that book that we could have done. So, you know, just like I'm looking forward to your book two, the part two we'll have to do the podcast part three and four when when that comes out won't we
1: i'd love to i'd I'd love to be on again thank you for having me
0: lovely thank you so much and i'll see you soon
1: okay then bye take
0: care bye If you are after a copy of Vines in a Cool Climate, I shall leave a link below in the show notes. But of course, you can just find it on Amazon. Also, if you want to get in contact with Henry, I mean, one of the easiest ways will be on Instagram. So at Henry G. Jeffries, again, I'll leave that down in the show notes. And as always, I will leave us with a wine quote. And Seeing as this was an episode on beautiful writing, I have found a quote from Natalie Goldberg, who is an American author and speaker. And she said, wine may be bottled poetry, but writing is the uncorking of the soul. Now, as I let you ponder on those beautiful words, I want to tell you who's coming on next week. I am talking with WSET wine educator, Sam Povey, and we will be talking about D- RC, Domaine de la Romani Conti, which is one of the most prestigious estates in the world. This is taking us to Burgundy and we are going to be talking about Sam's challenge to himself to start with a bottle of supermarket red wine and trade it all the way up to one of the most expensive bottles in the world. So, we're going to be talking about many wines he has been trading on the way. You do not want to miss this episode. He's a fantastic speaker, a fantastic educator, of course. And granted, we can't all get our hands on one of these bottles of DRC, but some of the other wines that we mention in next week's episodes, you can and you may feel inspired. So, that is it for today. If you are enjoying the episode, you know what to do. Do leave a review you or some stars share with your wine loving friends and i'll see you back here next week where hopefully Sam can inspire you with some new wines you might not have heard of before so until next week wine friends cheers to you